Every October, we take the time to celebrate the fact that we are Protestants. We are the original protesters. We are the original cool kids who stood up to the establishment and brought great change to this world. Now, why do we do that in October? Why do we celebrate that we are Protestants in October? Well, it is because in October, precisely October 31st, 1517, the Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, posted to the door of his local church in Wittenberg, Germany, 95 reasons why the doctrine of indulgence, a doctrine that had become accepted in the church, was contrary to the scriptures and contrary to the established dogma of the church. It is nearly universally accepted that that was the official beginning of the Protestant Reformation, that original post that consisted of his literally nailing paper to the door of the church marks, at least officially, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And the Bible Presbyterian Church is an heir of the Protestant Reformation, and we, and we very thankfully celebrate our heritage. We stand proudly in the tradition of the Protestant Reformation. And at our church, we celebrate the Protestant Reformation by using our Sunday school time to consider historical events and people leading to the Reformation and leading out of the Reformation. This year, we're not uh, yet meeting for the adult Sunday school class, so we will post a video, a lesson, every Sunday for the month of October on our YouTube channel on uh, on lessons that, that flow from the Reformation. And this year, we're going to to stay close to home, and we're going to consider the events that gave birth to the Bible, Bible Presbyterian Church as we stand in that stream that flows from the Protestant Reformation. In this lesson, I will focus on the fundamentalist modernist controversy because it is that controversy, that struggle, that ultimately gave birth to the Bible Presbyterian Church. In the next lesson, Andrew Hoy will teach us about the embodiment of the modernist in the person of Harry Emerson Fosdick. And Nick Anderson is going to follow that with a lesson on the champion of the fundamentalists, John Gresham Machen. And we're very thankful that we can end this series in October with uh, Dr. John Battle, who is a professor of New Testament theology at Western Reformed Seminary and a longtime Bible Presbyterian minister, teaching us about the uh, most widely known Bible Presbyterian minister in our history, the Reverend Dr. Carl McIntyre. In considering the uh, fundamentalist-modernist controversy, it is difficult to decide how far back in history we should go to trace the beginning of that controversy. One could go all the way to Genesis chapter 3 with the prophesied struggle between the seed of the woman and the serpent. Because really, that's what we're seeing there. We're seeing Christ struggling against Satan in the fundamentalist modernist controversy. We're not going to go that far, however. We might, we're going to go to the beginning of the 20th century. We might even dip a little bit into the end of the 19th century. But that's where we're going to draw our line. And as I said earlier, this is important for us to consider because the, this controversy eventually gave birth to the Bible Presbyterian Church, 
And at the same time, it's important for us to see that this is a continuation of Orthodox history, of, of good Bible-believing history, so that we can see that the Bible Presbyterian Church is not something that simply came to existence in 1937-38, but is a continuation of the true church that established, was established in the Abrahamic Covenant. We firmly stand on the doctrine of the apostles. In that sense, we are uh, one with the apostolic church. So what's going on? What gave birth to the fundamentalist modernist controversy? I think we can draw it back to a desire to broaden the Presbyterian Church, a desire to make the church big, to have influence over the world, rather than just faithfully ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to that end, there are some reform, uh, doctrinal reforms that were enacted in the church, and there was an alarm, uh, alarming growth of toleration towards modernism. You can go back to 1903, when the uh, confession was uh, amended to soften its Calvinistic position. There was a chapter added on the Holy Spirit, another chapter added on the, the love of God. And that was done in order to try to woo the Cumberland Presbyterian Church into the Northern Presbyterian Church so that the church would expand its border to become more relevant. And this quest for re relevancy is what eventually caused the church, the, the Northern Presbyterian Church, to die to the gospel of Jesus Christ and in its death to give birth to the Bible Presbyterian Church. The, the, the term modernism was first used really in Presbyterian circles as well as the, fundamental, the, the term fundamentalism. Both of these terms were first used in, uh, in Presbyterian circles all the way back in 1909. By 1910, there's a great controversy in the church already, and there's a publication of a two-volume work called The Fundamentals, A Testimony of the Truth. These two volumes included 31 contributors uh, and 90 different articles. If you, uh, if you Google it, and you're going to see that uh, the name of contributors is a, is a who is who list of those who were Bible-believing conservative uh, preachers of the time. It's interesting that the cost of publishing and disseminating two million sets was borne by two Presbyterian orders, two uh, elders, two Presbyterian elders were also brothers, Lyman and Milton Stewart from Los Angeles. And this was part of an attempt to, re to establish a fundamentalist movement within the Presbyterian Church, a fundamentalist movement that meant let's stick to these fundamentals. And the emphasis was on five points. Again, these are not uh, meant to be exhaustive doctrinal developments in the church or exhaustive confession of faith, but these, these, the, these five points, the five points of fundamentalism are the reaction of the Bible-believing conservative branch of the church to what was going on in the church already. And they insisted that we must believe and that ministers must believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures, that the scriptures are free of mistake, that they're inerrant, there is no error in them. What uh, often European um, theologians call the infallibility of the scriptures. 
They, they also said that pastors and the church in general should believe in the virgin birth and the deity of Christ. That's not something that we can debate. They said that, that we should believe in the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement through God's grace and human faith, the atonement that Christ provides, the body of resurrection of Jesus, and the authenticity of the miracles of Christ, that Christ actually performed miracles. These are the five fundamentals that uh, the conservatives in the church, in the Presbyterian Church, in the Northern Presbyterian Church, uh, rallied around. And as I said, even these were reactions to rumblings within the Northern Presbyterian Church dating back uh, to the trial, could go as far back to the trial of Charles, Charles Briggs in the late 1890s, when he, as a professor, a Union Seminary, a Presbyterian Seminary, was found guilty of believing in heterodox doctrine and was uh, excommunicated from the nomination, but not kicked out of the seminary and continued to influence future Presbyterian ministers there. And this group, you know, spurred by uh, the Stuart brothers, uh, called for prayer bands to, to, to meet and pray. And uh, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church considered these fundamentals, and they determined to be essential doctrines, and they were affirmed and reaffirmed several times in the General Assembly. Starting in 1910, said you cannot be a minister or an elder of the, in the church, in the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, unless you believed these things. That was reaffirmed again in 1916. It was reaffirmed again in 1923. And because of these reaffirmations, the, till 1922, modernists were not out in public. They were, able, they were willing to talk about these things in bedrooms and so on, but they were not out boldly um, talking about their position, their liberal position, till about 1922, when bald-faced liberalism came into place. And there was a deliberate accommodation for those who believed in a false doctrine of the Scriptures, a false doctrine of Christ, just a uh, false belief in the inspiration and heresy of the Scriptures. And really, a catalyst, a catalyst to that coming out of the modernists was a sermon preached by Harry, Harry, Harry Emerson Fosick, and, and uh, Elder Hoy is going to cover more that, in May of 1922, where he titled it, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? He preached that sermon at First Presbyterian Church in New York. It's interesting, though, that he was the pulpit, pulpit supplier of that Presbyterian church, and yet he was a Baptist, and he's the one that, that preached that Sermon in reaction to another sermon preached by a man by the name of McCarthy that uh, was also calling the fundamentalists to rise and uh, fight. And so that, that was 1922, and we have that beginning then of this outing of the modernists, of uh, modernists now not being afraid of speaking um, publicly and loudly. And that led to, in 1924, what became known as the Auburn Affirmation. Uh, in, so, 1922, you have uh, Fawzik preaching, shout the fundamentalists win. 1923, the General Assembly again votes, votes to reaffirm the fundamentals, which they do, but they do by the narrowest of margin. 
45% of all the votes went against reaffirming those, those fundamentals, those five points, as necessary for pastors and elders to believe in. And emboldened by that weak reaffirmation, a group of pastors met in Auburn, New York, 1,274 of them, and signed a document, that's what we call the Auburn Affirmation, and in that document they profess allegiance to the Confession of Faith, and say, oh yes, we hold, we hold on to the Westminster Confession of Faith, but they also, in the same document, alleged that the five fundamentals were only theories of interpretation, that there are other, and in their opinion, better way to understand what the Bible said about the virgin birth, or the inspiration of the scriptures, or the miracles of Christ, or the, or the resurrection, or his substitutionary atonement. And they denied in that Auburn affirmation the General Assembly's right of laying down any essentials for nation that are not in the Confession in the Constitution of the Church. So, in 1925, Presbyterians did what Presbyterians do best. They established a committee to investigate uh, the propriety of requiring that elders and ministers believe in the five fundamentals in order to remain in good standing, in good standing in the Church or to be ordained to the Church. The thing is that that committee was headed by broad churchmen, men who wanted to keep the church as broad as possible. Bear in mind that the majority of the church was not theologically liberal. The majority of the church was moderate, which meant that they believed the Bible, but they also believed that we should live in peace with the liberals, that the church would be better off if we just kept on talking with them and kept them in the pale of the church because then the church would be more relevant. In 1927, then, that committee reported to the General Assembly, and the General Assembly decided, adopted the, the report of the committee, uh, and decided that the General Assembly cannot establish essential and necessary articles of belief for a nation other than the Constitution of the Church, and the five fundamentals were not explicitly outlined in the Constitution of the Church. Now, the Presbyterians and Synods and General Assembly would be willing to look at cases on an individual basis. But the result of all of that is that the inclusivistic position of tolerance under the Auburn Affirmation became the official position of the Church. So here we have the softening of the position of the church. Now, men don't have to believe in these things in order to remain pastors and elders or to become pastors and elders. The church is not going to require that of them anymore. At the same time, we have that weakening there in the admission into the offices of the church. We have a decline in foreign missions as well. Uh, Robert Spear served for decades as the general secretary of the mission board. We could think of, it, of him as the big boss of Presbyterian missions to the world, uh, northern Presbyterian missions to the world. And as early as 1921, Robert Speer, who himself seemed to believe in orthodox theology, started sweeping under the rug charges of missionary heresies. These rumors were coming from the mission field that, that uh, Presbyterian missionaries were heretics and stories were coming and he would sweep that under 
the rug. Till in 1932, a commission was uh, formed to investigate what was going on in missions. The report of that commission was a document that uh, was known as Rethinking Missions. And this was an interdenominational uh, commission that came together to look at what was going on in an age of isolationism and modernism. And what they eventually found out is that missions had become essentially a syncretistic view of Christianity with the world religions. And the problem is that they said, the, 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 so the fighting is good and helpful, but the conclusion that they arrived was that was a good thing that should be allowed to stand. The foreign mission, the Presbyterian Foreign Mission Board then uh, coddled, for example, Pearl Buck, who was a Presbyterian missionary in China who really believed that the worst thing you can do for the Chinese is to preach Christ to them. And ultimately, in missions, ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical utilitarianism leads to intolerance for the conservative minority. Once the denomination adopted the idea that we need to keep the church as broad as possible and these views need to be accepted, the only view that's not accepted is the exclusive view of the conservatives. And they start to trying to they start to try to quiet down the conservatives. So you have the softening uh, of the entrance into the church and the offices. You have the struggle in the mission field and then the acceptance of a gospel that's other than the gospel of Christ in the mission field. At the same time, you're going to find a weakening of educational institutions, especially Princeton Seminary, which was the last bastion of Presbyterian orthodoxy. Uh, as early as 1909, we have a uh, student rebellion taking place uh, against an anti-practical intellectualism. At least that's how they view that what we're being taught here is not practical, or we need to do we need to to know how to preach how-to lists, and we're not getting this at Princeton. Now, in 1914, so think with me: the uh, the Auburn Affirmation is 1923, 1924. As early as 1914, 10 years earlier, you have already a movement to try to destabilize Princeton or to, to wrestle Princeton away from the conservatives by the appointment of Ross Stevenson as the president. Stevenson replaces Francis Patton as the president. Now, Stevenson himself was not a modernist, but he believed they should be tolerated where Patton represented the old position where, no, you're not to tolerate modernism. So he started the beginning of softening of Princeton there. Till in 1929, Princeton's government was reorganized by the GA. From the very beginning, Princeton, or close to the beginning, Princeton had two boards. You had the board of trustees that was in, that was in charge of the property, uh, of the, the physical buildings and so on. Then you had the board of directors was that was in charge of uh, uh, curriculum, student life, hiring of faculty, and so on. That board remained conservative. Slowly, the board of trustees was filled with men who had signed the Auburn Affirmation. So 1929 comes to place, and what does the General Assembly do? Does away with the board of general, uh, uh, the board of uh, directors, and merge the two borders boards. Now the board of trustees is in charge of the seminary, and that board is 
populated by men who had uh, signed the Auburn Affirmation. Now, these men are in charge of setting curriculum. These men are in charge of hiring professors. These men are in charge of student life. And that then was the, the context into which John Gresham Machen came in. I'm not going to say much about him because uh, Elder Anderson is going to talk more about him. But Machen was born in 1881 and died in 1970, uh, 1937. Uh, the only thing I'm really going to say about him is that uh, you must read his book, Christianity and Liberalism, which he wrote in 1923. It is as pertinent today as it was in 1923 when it was first, first published. In, in our lesson for today, the importance of Machen is that once Princeton was reorganized, the boards were reorganized, the, uh, it was, became clear for the conservatives that they need their, their own institution. So in 1929, Machen founded Western, uh, not Western Reformed Seminary, though we can say that he's a forefather as well, but he founded Westminster Theological Seminary. And he, he then inherited some conservative faculty from Princeton that came across with him. And for the first few years of Westminster, there, those were very turbulent years. In, in 1935, 1936, the majority of the board of Westminster Theological Seminary they were unwilling to separate from the old church. And the board, the majority of them resigned and followed O.T. Ellis, Professor O.T. Ellis, the uh, celebrated Old Testament scholar, uh, away from Westminster Theological Seminary. In 1937, another major blow is the departure of Dr. Alan McRae, who resigns to lead the newly founded Faith Theological Seminary. Another thing that uh, Machen did that, that we're going to mention here because it follows the flow of what we're talking about in our lesson is that in, in, in 1933, following the, uh, the, the, all the bad reports and the acceptance of a false gospel in the Presbyterian foreign missions, Machen, alongside other men, founded the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions in 1933. Uh, and... Uh, as a side note, that's still an independent agency of the Bible Presbyterian Church to this day. So, after several overtures to reform the foreign mission boards were not heeded or failed or thwarted, then the, um, these men, led by Machen, established the Independent Board for Presbyterian and Foreign Missions in 1933. Interestingly, that so far, Machen and his other men were just viewed as nuisance in the church. Yeah, it's like that little rock in your shoe that bothers you, but you're willing to still walk with it because you're too lazy to bend down and take your shoes off, and it's not really getting in your way. But when the Independent Board for Presbyterian and Foreign Missions is established, money starts leaving the church. And money talks louder than anything else. And that's when the church started actually pressuring these men more than had at any other time. So the General Assembly in 1934 said that you either disassociate from the Independent uh, Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions and dissolve that board, or you're going to be defrocked. Now, to be defrocked is to lose your ordination. In essence, is the equivalent for a minister or an elder of excommunication. And they said that they would be charged with breaking the fifth commandment because they were not obeying the general assembly. In their, in their, in their words, refusal to support 
the approved foreign mission board of the General Assembly was tantamount to refusing to partake of the Lord's Supper. And they decided to charge them under the Fifth Communion. Obedience to the constitutional powers was, was made equivalent to obedience to Christ. And because these men refused to obey the denomination at that point, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America purged itself of its conscience. John Gresham Machen, Carl McIntyre, Oliver Boswell, Roy Brumbaugh, H.S. Laird, Paul Woolley, and others all left the denomination. Roy T. Brumbaugh is my wife's uh, great-grandfather, who was actually defrocked by the Olympia Presbytery, right here where we're standing, of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, and uh, then founded the Tacoma Bible Presbyterian Church. But these men, even before they were going to leave the uh, Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, they established what they call a Constitutional Covenantal Covenant Union, which was an alliance of conservatives to attempt internal reforms. They were trying to reform the church. Much like Luther that wanted to reform the church from within, these men were trying to reform the church from, his, from within. But also they had in mind, if all else failed, this union then would become a denomination that would stand as the spiritual succession, the true spiritual succession of the old Presbyterian church. They, they had an official uh, journal, an official publication, the Presbyterian Garden, Guardian, that was established to counteract the newly formed Christianity today. They established, and, and, and when they're forced out of the church, and that's important for us to, to realize, these men, they didn't leave willing, they were forced out of the church. Dr. Machen fought through every level of church government, and was found uh, wrong in every level of church government before he was willing to leave the church. But when leaving became inevitable, they established the Presbyterian Church of America on June 11th, 1936. Now, this is not to be confu confused with the current PCA. The current denomination called PCA is Presbyterian Church in America. This was the Presbyterian Church of America. And at that point, they declared the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America officially and judicially apostate. And they adopted the Westminster Confession and the Presbyterian Church USA Constitution of 1934 with the proviso that the 1903 amendments, maybe I told you that they had added a couple chapters to the Confession in order to broaden the church and bring people who are not really Calvinistic at all or even Presbyterians into the denomination. So when they adopted the, 19, in the, in the 1934 Constitution, they dropped those, uh, those chapters as well. I came across a little article by Dr. Oliver Buswell, which was one of those men that left in, in, in 1936. And it, this was published in the Christian Beacon, which was a Bible Presbyterian publication. It was published in June of 1952. And in it, Dr. Buswell says, In 1903, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America adopted certain amendments in order to please groups which were doctrinally weak and poorly instructed. That is referring to the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, who were literally snaking and snake-handling Presbyterians, at least Presbyterians in name. Dr. Benjamin Warfield, one of the greatest Calvinistic teachers of the past, 
generation strongly protested against the adoption of these amendments. But when they were adopted, Dr. Rothfield declared, as Dr. J. Gresham Machen related the matter to me, that these amendments, weak and misleading as they were, did not actually change the system of doctrine. Well, our forefathers uh, decided that, uh, you know what, they may, so we're going to remove them from our adopted constitution. You know, uh, in God's providence, Machen died in 1937, January 1st, 1937, out of pneumonia. Uh, of pneumonia. Machen had a policy to never say no to a speaking engagement if he was available. So he went to the Dakotas in December to preach. Uh, he became very sick. He already departed sick and became very sick and died on January 1st, 1937. Uh, the official caused pneumonia. Some have suggested that he, he died actually of a broken heart of seeing all the fighting that's going on in the new form, formed group. So here we have it, in 1937, 1936, 1937, a new denomination is formed, Presbyterian Church of America, but it did not form itself as a united front. Once Dr. Machen died, there was a vacuum of, of strong diplomatic leadership in the church. And the divisions in this new group became apparent, especially the division between two groups that were fighting for dominance in the development, the early stages of this new denomination. One group was what we could call the old school majority, and old school is here used in a technical term uh, when it's beyond the scope of this lesson, but it had to do with a, a way of thinking uh, about missions and about revivalism. Uh, in the Presbyterian Church in the 1800s. And this group was strict confessionalists. They insisted on an European Reformed heritage, and they had their roots in Princeton. The other minority group was the New School minority. These were, uh, they, they subscribed to simple biblical literalism. They're more, they're more concerned with uh, a historical grammatical interpretation of the scriptures as opposed to allegorism. They were, they, they brand themselves as American Presbyterians. They, they're, they were, they were nationalistic, they were patriotic. They were more for a less centralized church, more democratic. And there was a greater emphasis on personal piety in that group. So these are the two groups that are vying for control now that there's a vacuum in leadership with the death of Dr. Machen. And this second group, the New School Minority, identified with the broadest, the broader fundamentalist movement. They also had their roots in Princeton, but also in the late 1900, 19th century um, Bible conferences movement that had been gone, especially those that have to do with uh, prophecy. And there's really three major stated issues that eventually caused the division between these two groups. The first one is eschatology. Some say that the Bible-Presbyterian Church started so that everybody could be pre-mill, but that's not quite the case. The Bible-Presbyterian Church was not founded in order to force any member of it to be a premillennialist. As a matter of fact, it's the actual, actually the opposite. The Bible-Presbyterian Church, this, this issue in the Bible-Presbyterian Church was there in order to provide eschatological liberty. The premillennialists in that original denomination, the Presbyterian Church of America, were being persecuted for being premillennialists. The amillennialists were trying to enforce amillennialism on everybody. 
And this new group, the, the group that came out and became the Bob Presbyterian Church, wanted to protect people's ability to have freedom of eschatology. We can see that in, in the first synod that we held, there was a, an actual resolution to that end explaining that that was the case. Uh, the Constitution was amended to, repo, to, to allow for a premillennial return of Christ, but that was done in order to protect, not to exclude. A second issue was the issue of total abstinence, alcoholic abstinence, among other things, uh, smoking and going to the tavern and uh, watching movies, uh, but mostly total abstinence against full Christianity. The, the, the group that became the, the Bible Lutheran Church was on the side of total abstinence. And then the third issue is independent boards or church boards, that is, should the, the, the denomination be in control of the Board of Missions and the Board of Education, or should the, the denomination approve agencies that are in charge of those things? And the reason for that is so that the denomination, if the denomination goes, goes bad, these agencies will remain faithful because they are independent from the denomination, even though all the board members and so on may be members of the denomination, they are self-perpetuating boards, the members are not appointed by the denomination. So these are the three issues that eventually separated the Bible Presbyterian Church from that original Presbyterian Church of America. And that happened in 1937, though our first synod didn't take place until 1938. Just as to wrap that up, that Presbyterian Church of America eventually was sued by the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, uh, claiming that the name was too close was, to them it would cause confusion. And uh, they settled that lawsuit and changed their names from Presbyterian Church of America to Orthodox Presbyterian Church at that time. But the Bible Presbyterian Church then was born in 1937 with its first official sin in 1938. Uh, in some ways, our history can be told uh, in a, uh, by the splits that we've gone through. We started uh, as a strong church and uh, with, with uh, a, a lot of promise and strong uh, evangelical uh, drive uh, uh, behind us. Uh, missions were important, evangelism were important, church planting were important to us, we were growing. We were definitely part of the fundamentalist movement, but we we're an odd fundamentalist movement, um, fundamentalist church in that we we're very engaged with culture. We're very engaged in, in the effort of changing society, which is not the bunker mentality of fundamentalism that usually you see out there. But our, after we are founded, we do go through a cycle of splits. The most noticeable one being in 1956, that cost us um, a lot of our churches, a majority of our churches, and nearly compromised the future of the Bible Presbyterian Church. At that time, um, for whatever reasons, uh, there are stated reasons and there are personal reasons, uh, there is a group of men, a large group of men, who left the Bible Presbyterian Church and started the Evangelical Reformed Presbyterian Ch Church. A man like Francis Schaeffer, by the way, Francis Schaeffer was the very first man ordained in the Bible Presbyterian Church. Oliver Buswell, uh, Rob C. Rayburn, J. Adams all left the Bible Presbyterian Church in 1956. Eventually, that denomination that was formed at that time joined the PCA. Most of the northern PCA churches, because the PCA came out of the uh, 
the Presbyterian Church in America come out of the Southern Presbyterian Church. Most of the Northern Presbyterian, the long-standing Northern Presbyterian churches were originally Bible Presbyterian Church and still bear that name to this day. In 1971, um, Dr. McIntyre persuaded the Board of Faith Theological Seminary to retire Dr. McRae early. And as a reaction to that, Dr. McRae and almost the entire faculty left Faith Theological Seminary and established a biblical seminary in Philadelphia. In 1976, a smaller split, the American Presbyterian Church was formed out of the Bible Presbyterian Church, but I think it was just one presbytery, maybe three churches, uh, and that was due to a hyper-interpretation of the regulative principle of worship. In 1984, uh, another, uh, another part of the Bible Presbyterian Church left, and uh, over financial accountability of independent agencies and the Bible Christian Church Association with the International Council of Christian Churches. Uh, following that, in 1984, following that split, when a group, particularly Eastern churches, left, there was a great uh, defamation campaign started by those that left that defamed a, a, a great number of our men running their names through the muck. In 2008, five churches uh, from along the eastern seaboard left the synod alongside, of, of, with, of, with, uh, alongside several ministers without charge. Uh, they left our synod because of the synod's relationship with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And at that time, they formed the Faith Presbytery. And that brings us to today. Who are we today? Today, we are a denomination that is growing. We are a denomination that is faithful to the scriptures. Uh, that 1984 split in, in, in one way or another uh, shifted our attention to our own confession and constitution, and we've become much more confessional and Presbyterian than we have ever had, have, than we were prior to 1984. Uh, the leadership of men like uh, Robert Anderson, uh, John Battle, Glenn Rogers, uh, James Blizzard, James L. Blizzard, uh, we have become much more confessional than we were uh, before. We are made of four presbyteries as a total. We have 27 churches plus a few church plants. Uh, we have four approved agencies that uh, our synod has accredited, uh, Western Reform Seminary, Presbyterian Missionary Union, uh, and uh, Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions. Uh, we also had a fourth one called the uh, Bible Presbyterian Publications, but that has uh, taken a break. That, that institution has taken a break for a while in its operations. We are present in four fields, international fields, in Myanmar and Cambodia and Brazil and Lebanon, and that we are uh, actively planting churches. So people ask me about the Bible Presbyterian Church. And I see, I, I see it as a church of opportunities. We see our church as being a church where things are happening, where we have the foundational structure to disciple the nations. And we have people who are willing to do, to do that. We have a church that is intent on glorifying God, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's who we are today. And that finds all... And that is grounded on the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century through the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the 20th century, compelling us into the 21st century and, Lord willing, centuries to come 
uh, if our Lord tarries, in service of Christ in a reformed, confessional, even, even uh, evangelism-driven, missions-oriented denomination. Praise the Lord for establishing the Bible the Presbyterian Church and keeping it faithful to Him through the decades.